Hello, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for show 186, brought to you here on uh, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, as well as with video here on YouTube. So guys, you know, I've never really thought of myself as being in the advice business very much. Uh, I thought of myself more in the writing and sort of education business, (laughs) and uh, of course, the cult recovery business, Um, but... Recently, something happened this last week that really got me thinking, and I ended up thinking, you know, this might make a good podcast. I should actually talk about this. And I, as I want to do, I uh, looked up some things, found some stuff that might back up some of my <laughs> advice that I'm going to give here. And uh, and so while you might have heard, you know, I, I'm not trying to be anybody's guru. <laughs> imagine what that would feel like. Uh, But, you know, we all learn things. Every, you know, one of the things that I think is great about life, and in fact, one of the principles that I wrote down for myself years ago, which I'll share with you guys maybe at the end of this thing, um, is that, you know, everybody you meet has something to teach you. So really, is there anybody that you couldn't get at least one good piece of advice from on something? You know, I mean, if you kind of think about it, that's at least how I choose to look at and try to look at other people in the world and try to, you know, kind of keep an upbeat attitude about things. And, uh, and there's, turns out, there's actually quite a bit of science behind why that might not be such a bad idea. But my advice is not be optimistic or be happy or anything goofy like that, because you're going to be how you're going to be. <laughs> and, um, and so here's what happened, and I'll, I'll share this with you, and then we can kind of proceed into why this might not be such bad advice. Um, a friend of mine on Facebook this last week asked about what is it that his friends, he was asking all of his friends, what do you know about that most people don't know much about? And I thought, well, you know, cult recovery, coercive persuasion, authoritarian groups, I mean, you know, kind of negative stuff, right? And I thought, oh, well, I, that's, that's what I know more than, and of course, Scientology. But, you know, at this point, who cares about Scientology? <laughs> I mean, it's not like anybody's going to be asking me for the, uh, in, in a really interested social manner, uh, how do you do the, that auditing anyway? Or, you know, what is an ARC break? Or any kind of, you know, then nobody cares. But, uh, but it, what instead, what was so great about my friend is he said, well, in response to me saying that, he said, well, what would be a piece of advice that you might give people based on all the things that you have learned and know about this? And I thought, wow, what a great question. And here's what I wrote. The one trick most people can most easily apply, which will save them endless amounts of grief, is simply this. When making any truly important or life-altering decisions on any matter of any kind, wait. Just wait. Just wait a while. (laughs) You know, like at least a couple days. It would be best if people would use that time to research more or find out the counter-arguments, quote-unquote, or for what it is they feel like they want to do. But the added time will automatically dissipate a lot of the emotional investment 
of the heat of the moment, so they don't impulsively do something because it quote-unquote feels right. There's a lot going on under the hood with all this, but wait is the single best piece of advice I could give anyone on anything. If the thing you want or the idea you have is truly so great, it will still be just as great in a couple days. And you've then given yourself time to chill and really think about the unintended consequences of your decision before you make it. All right, so I think that's pretty good long-term advice on just about anything. So let's talk about where, of course, I was thinking about this contextually because uh, obviously, you know, this sort of advice has a lot to do with uh, big decisions, but when are we put in positions where we have to make big decisions and there's some kind of time pressure element or financial economic pressure element? Well, generally speaking, we get into those kind of things when we're in a sales cycle of some kind or somebody's trying to sell us something or somebody's trying to convince us of something that we might not be so convinced of or something like that, and they're trying to push something off on us. Um, if someone is saying, you know, now or never, 100% of the time, say never. <laughs> Uh, because here's the thing, when somebody's putting those kind of constraints on you, they're doing it for a reason, and those reasons don't have to do with your best interests. And let's think about this for a second, let's talk about it. Um, really, this now or never approach, and there are a thousand variations on it. Um, you know, they are limited time offers, buy now, today only, I mean, those kind of things, or you're only going to be able to get it at this price today, right? Well, we're all out of stock. This is the last one. There's no more available. You know, they limit, they somehow create a scarcity or they create the idea in you that if you do not act now, you might lose this opportunity, this, this chance to buy this thing or acquire this thing or somehow obtain what it is that you're trying to obtain. This is not just for financial situations or places where you're going to be trading money. This has to do with relationships, uh, any kind of relationship. This has to do with uh, work situations. I mean, this is really pretty broadly applicable stuff. And that business about how it creates a scarcity this uh, or, a, or a threat of loss. Now, if you think about that for a second, look at what's going on up here as a result of that kind of talk. Here you are having a normal, nice conversation with somebody, and suddenly there's this pressure element. But why is it pressure? Because what happens when you are presented with this, oh my God, it might be gone, oh, I might lose this, is it, it's threat of loss. It's, it it's literally kicks in a kind of panic mode in your mind, in your brain, right? And, uh, and that's being done on purpose. Because when we start kicking in those, uh, when that part of the brain, let's say, kicks in, and we'll find out more about that a little bit later in the podcast, what, what part of the brain. But when that part kicks in, um, you're, are now, you are now responding to a threat. Of course, our brains are tuned three times harder to look for, watch for, be aware of, and respond and react to threats than it is tuned to look for positives. 
Um, so that, in, that, that need that becomes generated within us to respond and act now, it's actually a reciprocal thing. This, this artificial threat is created. We respond to it with urgency because that's how we're designed to act when we're, when we're faced with a threat or a loss or a threat of loss of some kind. Okay, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's what those sales guys are trying to do is they're literally trying to kind of kick in your fight or flight, oh my God, I must do this kind of impulse you know, response. This isn't the same thing, by the way, as impulse buying. It's related, but it's different. Uh, I'm talking here about these situations where, an, you know, there's some kind of uh, artificial threat or loss being created, okay? Because, uh, yeah, this is done all the time in cult recruitment, which, of course, is why I bring it up in the first place. Every single one of the cult recruitment tactics revolve around this kind of creation of this kind of urgency, right? There's also all these other, sorry, I should say there are other kinds of cult recruitment tactics. I shouldn't say they all fall under this banner because they don't. There's love bombing and, you know, and that sort of thing too, and the whole in-group, out-group appeal, uh, which is a different thing. But but this is one of the uh, most common tactics used in sales, but it's also one of the most common tactics used in cult recruitment. This is a big one to get you to pays the money, make the commitment, do this, you know, get involved in it so that you will then be kind of invite yourself to <laughs> to commit what becomes a sunk cost fallacy where you're putting money in, you're putting time in, now you've invested in it, your emotional investment becomes that much more, and it's that much harder to get out, okay? So this initial point of entry into these groups, like a cult group, for example, are really important. They really can be. Uh, all right. And of course, cult leaders and Scientology salespeople know all about this, even though they don't know about it because they're thinking about the neurology of it. They know about it because this is, this is stuff that's been known about for centuries. I mean, people just know how this stuff works. They know how people respond to things. And for salespeople or cult leaders or authoritarian types who don't have your best interests in mind, they pay a lot of attention to how people act. They don't necessarily go read up on all this stuff as far as the brain science goes. And over only the last 20 years or so, that would they have been even able to do that? But, um, but you don't have to learn this that way in order to know that this is true. You work on enough people long enough and you start tuning your act to work. And if you want it to work, you're going to start doing this kind of thing, this high pressure thing. And you're going to be creating situations where the person is pressured or forced or somehow pushed, maybe mildly, maybe with kid gloves they're being pushed, but it's still the iron hand inside those, those kid gloves, um, that they are pushing you to make a decision now. It's all about now. And that's the thing that you have to resist or work on, you know, fighting. And this is not even to say, and I really want to stress this maybe from the very get-go here, that this is not to say that you need to engage in a lot of no, 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 and arguing and fighting and all that. You just, 
It's not that I'm saying don't do it if you want to do it. What I'm saying is if you feel like this is a good thing to do, good. Wait, it'll still be a good thing to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day. All right, so let's take a look at some of this. You know, this is all about, by the way, um, mood swings, mood changes, right? Our moods change, and our mood has everything to do with not only what kind of decisions we're going to make, but how rational or reasonable those decisions are going to be. You know, angry people, uh, people in a very negative frame of mind, are operating on a whole different part of the brain than when you are um, in a reasonable, positive, rational state of mind where this part of the brain's working. It's literally different parts, right? So, uh, so it really is in your best interest at every decision point to put yourself or somehow get yourself or wait for yourself to be in a positive, reasonable, rational state of mind, not an anxious, concerned, fearful, worried, grief-stricken, upset, state of mind. Those are, those, every time that's going on, that's the time you got to tell yourself, not now. I will wait. I will make this decision later. Uh, okay, well, why? Well, first off, we have a negativ negativity bias. Uh, we are literally three times more likely to put attention on a negative rather than a positive. In doing some research on this, I was digging up some quotes and articles, which I'm going to source or cite rather in the description section of this podcast and at sensiblyspeaking.com in the show notes. So you can check all these out and I'm putting links to all of these articles uh, so you can follow up and see them for yourself. First one that I want to quote from is an author named Debbie Hampton. She wrote an article called Six Ways Science Can, can Help Your Brain Be Happier. And she wrote... Your brain perceives negative stimuli more rapidly and easily than positive, and even stores it differently. We recognize angry faces more quickly. We overestimate threats and underestimate opportunities and overlearn from bad experiences while underlearning from good ones. In your brain, bad beats good every time. Over time, these negative experiences make your brain even more sensitive to the negative and more easily alarmed and reactive. While this trait helped our ancestors survive, it can leave us depressed, stressed, worried, and worn out today. In the book Hardwiring Happiness, The Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence, Rick Hansen writes, your brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. Now, there's a whole, there's all kinds of ways that that information can be utilized in all kinds of avenues to uh, frame different arguments or talk about different ways that this is applicable. Um, you know, the, in terms of how we remember things, how we look at things, what influences our opinions of things. But in this context, what I'm talking about when I talk about this negative and positive bus business is I'm talking about your decision-making processes. When you are, you know, let's talk about Scientology, for example. Let's get really specific for a second. I, for those of you who might have been listening to videos that I've made in the past, I've talked about how when you go into a Scientology center, they're going to try to find your ruin. That's what they call it, the thing that is ruining your life. 
It's a negative, isn't it, right? They're looking for that. They want to uh, find what that is. They want you to tell them, them all about it, and it's not hard. It's not hard because this is the kind of thing our brain focuses on, is the negative. We don't look at all the positives of our life in the same light, at the same equal we don't give it the same equal amount of strength or importance as all those negatives. It's more of a this kind of thing, right? So one is unbalanced. So, um, so it's not hard for a Scientology salesperson to get you to tell them negative things about your life and things you don't like about yourself or about things that are going on in your immediate environment. You give that information to them, and then they beat you, basically, with rubber hoses, <laughs> figuratively speaking, of course. Uh, not literally. But they um, then really beat into you how negative that thing is and how it's going to keep ruining your life if you don't do something about it. And you walked in right now, and obviously you have a need to do something about this. Otherwise, you wouldn't have walked in the door, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. So clearly, you have a desire to do something about this ruin that you have. It is ruining your life. So now, right now, is the time for you to make the change and pay for this course and do it or pay for this counseling and let's get you in session right now and let's start handling this, right? And they're going to keep on on that exact vein to convince you to do this now, now, now. All right. The negative reinforcement that goes on in our own brains only helps them sell us that product that they're trying to sell us when they frame it in that light. That's the, that's the important part there. So by waiting, especially when you're in a negative mood or when faced with some kind of threat like that, it allows us to put a pause on the negativity, see? We can then step back and by putting ourselves, maybe take going out and taking a walk, taking a break, maybe just saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to get back to you tomorrow, or I'm going to get back to you in a couple days, and going off and just doing something entirely different from what you were just focused on. You got to get your, you got to get your environment different. You got to get your thoughts different. You really want to put yourself in a whole different place mentally for a little while, because you want to give some time to happen so that other parts of your brain start engaging in this negative, you know, concentration that you have on this ruin of your life, for example, in the Scientology example I'm giving here, gets a chance to simmer down, right? The thing that's ruining your life is still going to be there, you know? But it gives your brain, you give yourself time to get the whole brain engaged in solving the problem. And then with some, what we've called, with some perspective, with some time and distance, you know, other, literally other parts of your brain are engaging and you're able to look at this same situation from what is literally a different point of view. In fact, lots of different points of view because there's all kinds of things going on in your brain all the time looking at these things from different angles. The pressure of the sales cycle is to keep you focused on only looking at it from that one angle, basically straight from your amygdala. Like I said, we'll go into some of that, so let's carry on. How do we know what happens with people's moods beyond just watching ourselves or others, right? 
A study was done of some brains by a guy named Dr. Richard Davidson from the University of Wisconsin, which showed some interesting things. Quote, the functional MRI images reveal that when people are emotionally distressed, anxious, angry, depressed, the most active sites in the brain are circuitry converging on the amygdala, part of the brain's emotional centers, and the right prefrontal cortex, a brain region important for the hypervigilance typical of people under stress. By contrast, when people are in positive moods, upbeat, enthusiastic, and energized, those sites are quiet with the heightened activity in the left prefrontal cortex. Indeed, Dr. Davidson has discovered what he believes is a quick way to index a person's typical mood range. By reading the baseline levels of activity in these right and left prefrontal areas, that ratio predicts daily moods with surprising accuracy. The more the ratio tilts to the right, the more unhappy or distressed a person tends to be, while the more activity to the left, the more happy and enthusiastic. By taking readings on hundreds of people, Dr. Davidson has established a bell curve distribution, with most people in the middle having a mix of good and bad moods. Those relatively few people who are farthest to the right are most likely to have a clinical depression or anxiety disorder over the course of their lives. For those lucky few farthest to the left, troubling moods are rare and recovery from them is rapid. And that's a New York Times article called Finding Happiness Cajole Your Brain to the Left. And that's not to the left politically. Some people are optimistic by nature, but many of us learn optimism as well. Anyone can learn to be optimistic. The trick is to find purpose in work and life, says Leah Weiss, PhD, a Stanford professor specializing in mindfulness in the workplace. When we work with purpose or live with purpose, we feel more fulfilled and better equipped to see the glass half full. Positive thinking doesn't mean that you ignore life's stressors. You just approach hardship in a more productive way says Kimberly Hershenson, LMSW. Constructing an optimistic vision of life allows one to have a full interpersonal world in spite of unfortunate circumstances. It reduces feelings of sadness, depression, and anxiety, increases your lifespan, fosters stronger relationships with others, and provides a coping skill during times of hardship. Being optimistic allows you to handle stressful situations better which reduces the harmful health effects of stress on your body. And that is from How to Train Your Brain to Be More Optimistic. Again, all of these articles I'm quoting from are cited in the references uh, in the show notes on this podcast. So this is how we cannot just avoid bad choices and unintended consequences, but it's also how to actually express more free will. <laughs> if you guys listened to my podcast last week, I basically said all this stuff is out of our hands anyway, and that wasn't really the point. You know, the point of that podcast was not to tell you that we're all just a bunch of automatons who have no ability to make any choices. Uh, it was really just a matter of trying to educate about things I've been learning about so people would see that, you know, maybe our choices are not quite as uh, free as we like to pretend they are. But in this case, you know, in these kind of circumstances, 
this is kind of what I'm talking about. Because if you're in a situation where you are purposefully put in a stressed mood or in an anxious or, or uh, angry or, or uh, griefy or whatever kind of mood, the decision-making that you're going to be making, the choices you're going to be making, are going to be made by your amygdala and by the right side of your brain. And those are places that are not thinking the whole thought through fully, you see. Those are responsive, reactive types, type areas of your brain. You want to engage the whole thing. Making important or life-changing decisions when you have been frightened, angered, or upset is almost guaranteed to lead you to second guesses, regrets, and future misery. Life-changing decisions also do not always announce themselves as life-changing decisions. You don't always know what the consequences of your decisions are going to be, and you can never account for every unintended consequence. But giving yourself more time gives you more time to think through all those options. In terms of changing mood, there are also some tricks you can use, which actually do work sometimes. This is not any kind of claim to 100% workability, but, um, but it does work sometimes. And it can kind of sort of force your body to respond, and eventually your mood actually follows. For example, making yourself laugh or even just smiling. And I have a quote on this as well. There were actually a number of studies that have been done on the efficacy of laughter and humor and smiling to a person's mood and general well-being. And the results were actually quite interesting. Here's a quote from one such study. Laughter and humor are not beneficial for everyone, but since there are no negative side effects, they should be used to help reduce stress and pain and improve healing. Findings range from suggesting that, in addition to stress relief effect, laughter can bring about feelings of being uplifted or fulfilled, to showing that the act of laughter can lead to immediate increases in heart rate, respiratory rate, or, and oxygen consumption. These increases are then followed by a period of muscle relaxation with a corresponding decrease in heart rate, respiratory rate, and blood pressure. And that is according to Morse DR, and that is linked in the show notes. Now, I'm going to throw a little caution out there about this, that this is not a long term, you know, forcing yourself to smile. This is something we've known about forever. There was a little poem that I learned in Scientology that has just a little twist to it, but actually gives old school sage advice on changing your mood. And I actually used this as a survival skill in the Sea Org because most of the time when I was in the Sea Org, I was not in the mood to smile or laugh very often. Of course, we would tell jokes and that sort of thing every now and again, but it was a pretty deadly serious activity. And the idea was that it was supposed to be that way because that's what L. Ron Hubbard said. Yet at the same time, he also wrote something called The Joy of Creating. And again, this is with a little twist, and maybe you can spot what it is. Here we go. Force yourself to smile, and you'll soon stop frowning. Force yourself to laugh, and you'll soon find something to laugh about. A being causes his own feelings. The greatest joy there is in life is creating. Splurge on it. Now, all that's great, except for the fact that you do not cause your own feelings all the time. There are all kinds of external stimuli acting on you to make you feel the way that you do. 
But that's not to say that you are completely powerless and are just a leaf blowing in the wind. There's lots of things you can do to improve your mood and clarity of mind and, and rationality and that sort of thing. And quite honestly, just forcing yourself to smile is one of those things. This is not just my opinion at this point. It's actually a matter of scientific study. And the results of those studies show that um, this is a very good thing to be doing. Um, and certainly, if it doesn't work, well, there's no negative side effects from it. So there's really no downside. So there were lots of times where I had to uh, force myself to smile, you know, to kind of get through the day when I was in Scientology. The idea, of course, being that if you're having to do this over and over and over again, perhaps there might be some more involved or deeper forms of therapy or work you might want to do on yourself in order to solve the situations of your life or work out your attitude towards those situations so that you're not having to force yourself all the time to have to smile. But as a temporary measure, this is definitely something that I can endorse. Now, talking about endorsing some things, here's a few other things that I can endorse. I, I had to laugh. I actually pulled this up the other day uh, in preparation for this podcast. I was, uh, I, I'd, re I, I'd lost this for a while, and I had to actually dig it up from my old Facebook pictures. Uh, I'd written this down back in 2000, I think early 2015 or late 2014, after being uh, out for really a fairly short amount of time and kind of getting my bearings and working out uh, how life is lived out here in the big wide world as opposed to living it in the cult bubble. And I wrote down the top 10 things I've learned so far, and I thought I might share these with you. I threw it up on social media back uh, in 2015. And I looked it up, I pulled it up, and I thought, you know, a lot of these are still pretty, not, not so bad. You know, maybe I should share these. So, um, it, and it's, isn't it funny how you look back on things you've said in the past, and sometimes you look at all the change that's happened since then, and you go, wow, I've really changed. But sometimes you manage to hit on something that actually is just kind of kind of sticks with you and actually kind of works. Well, that's what these are. So here we go. The top 10 things I've learned so far. One, life is going to happen whether you want it to or not. <laughs> Two, not everyone you meet is going to like you. Ever. No matter what you do. Three, no one ever said life is fair or even that it's supposed to be. Four, every single day, Stupid people are going to do stupid things no matter how hard you try to stop them. But the smart ones will too. Five, if you want to bring about real change in the world, you won't do it part-time. Six, expecting a politician to do anything that is not in his or her best interests is like expecting a baby not to cry. It's simply not in their DNA. Seven, some of the most wondrous, awesome, and incredible people are out there waiting to be part of your life. You'll only find them if you go out there, too. Eight, no one can force you to think, nor should they have to. Nine, you can learn something important from every single person you ever meet. Ten, comfort from relationships is not a substitute for being comfortable with yourself. All right, guys. I thought... Uh, you know, never gave advice like this before, but maybe it'll help some folks. Thank you very much for coming around and listening. I would love to hear your feedback on what I had to say here. And uh, check out some of the sources that I cited. Like I said, I made links for them in the show notes. 
Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback for me on my podcast, please leave it in the comment section below. Yes, this was a shorter podcast than usual by half, but uh, I didn't feel the need to try to expand or bloviate on any of this. I thought I was already doing that a little bit already. So I just wanted to get this out there because this actually is the most important thing I can think of to tell you guys. Out of everything I've ever said, out of all the stuff I've ever put out, if I was going to take everything down from my channel and leave one central core message for the entire world, this podcast would pretty much be it. And that might surprise you, kind of surprises me to say that out loud, but it actually is how I feel right now. So again, thanks for coming around and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.